Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And in the week of news about Taiwan, things are ending not so much with a retreat from the brink as a focus on the ink. Mainland China's military forces that had encircled Taiwan have now ended their exercises, some of which involved firing surface-to-surface missiles over the self-ruled island, as well as simulated amphibious invasions. And now Taiwan's military forces have ended their exercises involving the simulated repelling of an amphibious assault and air attack. And after 10 days of hearing from American and mainland Chinese ministers, politicians and diplomats about their perspectives of the situation, we heard from Taiwan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joseph Wu. China's behavior towards Taiwan is merely a pretext. Its ambitions and impact extending far beyond Taiwan It is thus critical that all freedom-loving countries around the world should work together to explore means to respond to the expansion of authoritarianism. For its part, on Tuesday this week, Beijing issued a white paper laying out exactly its ambitions for Taiwan. It wants to bring the one country, two systems policy to Taiwan if and when it takes over government in Taipei, the same one it's been using in Hong Kong since 1997 and possibly not the greatest selling point to Taiwanese people who've been watching closely how things have been playing out in Hong Kong for the past couple of years. At the same time, the US Congress has unveiled what it calls the Taiwan Act. It's a substantial update to its original 1979 legislation that recognized the Beijing government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, and that it would, quote, maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. You're going to hear from Jacob Fromer in Washington about the massive changes to this legislation, which don't just open the door to advance military support. It recognizes Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally, and it also opens the door to what kinds of flags can be flown around Washington, D.C. You'll also hear from our Beijing diplomacy expert, Xi Jingtao, about how this is being received by analysts in mainland China. And we'll welcome back Finbar Birmingham from Brussels for an update on how the nations of Europe are getting increasingly alarmed at what's happening on this side of the world, and some politicians are increasingly interested about travelling to Taiwan. And as ever in this ever-developing story, the latest news, updates and analysis will be found at scmp.com. Let's get amongst it. Jacob Fromer is part of the South China Morning Post Bureau based in Washington, D.C. He filed a story on the Taiwan Act proposed by the U.S. Senate back in early June. And as of Tuesday this week, it's back in the headlines. But what does it mean? Jacob, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much, Jared, for having me. It's great to be back. Let's start with your latest story posted to SEMP overnight. You've reported on Nancy Pelosi's first press conference since her return 
from her Southeast Asian tour that included this 19-hour visit to Taipei, what did she have to say? Yeah, this was the first time we got to hear from not only Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, but also the other members of the House of Representatives who traveled with her on this trip at length about why they wanted to take this trip, what they think they got out of it, you know, what they think needs to happen next. And so it was a, a really valuable and interesting press conference because um, obviously a lot of people in Washington and just as they are probably in Beijing and Taipei and elsewhere are really eager to hear what these lawmakers have to say about the trip. And, you know, the overall message was essentially Beijing isn't going to tell Congress what it can and can't do. Pelosi and the others were were really adamant about that. Um, they felt that Beijing's reaction to the visit was, on the one hand, an overreaction, in, in their view, was undermining the status quo that Beijing is constantly talking about. So that's sort of looking at it as a reaction. But then another point that I think was really interesting that the lawmakers were emphasizing today is that, on the other hand, it wasn't a reaction at all. They said that this is just an excuse. This is just a pretext. These large-scale, unprecedented-in-scale military exercises surrounding Taiwan clearly hadn't been just sort of thought up on the spot. These were planned for a long time, and they needed a pretext to act more aggressively surrounding Taiwan. And this was their moment. This was their excuse. So they could say, look at this trip, and this is why we have to come in and do this. You know, Speaker Pelosi basically said, China is trying to establish a new normal. She went on to say, we can't let that happen. The quote from her press conference is, we will not allow China to isolate Taiwan. And so it, it wasn't just about sort of a symbol of US support, but it was for Taiwan. It was also sort of this message to China that what you're doing is unacceptable to Congress. If anything, it has absolutely hardened the US views on how this situation is playing out and where the U.S. should be standing in terms of, you know, this these cross-strait relations questions. Um, it is definitely, um, you know, Beijing's actions have made, I think, both parties in Congress see even more clearly why, from their perspective, they need to be standing with Taiwan um, as a fellow democracy and um, making sure that it is not going to suffer the same fate as Ukraine has from Russia. Jacob, you mentioned some of the other people that were on the trip. I find it quite curious. There's been such a lack of attention to the other people that flew with her to Taipei. They weren't just, quote, diplomats. It included very senior members of very senior committees uh, within the Congress. And as I understand, Gregory Meeks, who is the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he had some things to say as well. Yeah, one of the things that the lawmakers have really tried to emphasize in, in sort of all of the noise surrounding this trip is that they are members of Congress. That's their position in government. They are following a precedent of many other members of Congress traveling. Even a Speaker of the House has gone to Taiwan before. And so this trip did have, you know, the, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee also, in addition to the Speaker of the House, these are powerful people in the House of Representatives. It seemed from the press conference pretty much in lockstep in their views that I imagine a lot of Republicans, because this was an all Democratic Party trip, but a lot of Republicans, I think, also agree with in Congress. And it's basically um, this sense, as Congressman Meeks said today, he, he made it personal about Xi Jinping, he said, you know, what this trip did is show that no matter what President Xi says, 
we are going to stand by our friends and allies. And they just kept emphasizing that point over and over again. Beijing is not going to dictate how Congress engages with Taiwan, period. That was the message. And I find it interesting that the tone of uh, comments, both from Nancy Pelosi and US President Joe Biden, seem to be, if not sanguine, quite calm compared to the commentary, hot takes, and legion of, of analysts who fired off you know, their great fears of imminent war via Twitter, etc. Let's turn to this new Taiwan Act. And of course, not quite new. It's an update on the original 1979 Act. But it's one thing for the US to announce a further four and a half billion US dollars in support for Taipei. But the major announcement in this is that the US will now designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Can you tell us about the significance of that? As it's proposed, you know, as the this bill, as far as it stands right now, it would be a shift in how the U.S. engages with Taiwan. You know, this is a relationship that is very complicated, that is officially described as unofficial. That's the technical term for it, unofficial. And this bill called the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 it reiterates that point. It says that status, the official or unofficial relationship won't change between the U.S. and Taiwan, but that doesn't mean that it can't be a very close unofficial relationship or a very, you know, trusting unofficial relationship. And the concept of this major non-NATO ally, you know, the State Department describes, you know, when a country is considered a major non-NATO ally, like South Korea or Japan or Israel, they say this is, you know, a powerful symbol, basically, of, of how close two countries are. And to bring Taiwan into that, even while still having this convoluted, quote unquote, unofficial relationship where there technically aren't embassies and ambassadors is a quite strong statement. And not just a statement, but it's it's a, a mechanism even to, to bring the two governments and militaries and societies much closer, even than they are right now. This bill would facilitate even more arms sales from the US to Taiwan. It would create a new sort of channel for funding to flow from the US to Taiwan so it can, you know, defend itself. I can't help but note that with elevating Taiwan to a relationship similar to Israel, Japan, and South Korea, Jacob, Japan and South Korea have quite significant US military bases. And I wonder if that's playing on the minds of Beijing strategists and analysts. But also this act, this Taiwan act is making the headlines this week, but has it been passed into legislation? No, it hasn't been passed into legislation. It was introduced by a bipartisan duo of senators, Bob Menendez, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Lindsey Graham, uh, who's a Republican from South Carolina. He is the top Republican on the appropriations uh, subcommittee that oversees funding for the State Department. So these are two very powerful senators in terms of what this bill is trying to do. Um, they introduced it. There had been plans to sort of take the bill up at the committee level uh, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It got delayed. And, and you know, there were a lot of questions about why was this delayed? You know, it doesn't have anything to do with Beijing's position on this. And the answer I got when chatting with people on the Hill was basically, no, 
there was a, a crazy schedule before the Senate was getting ready to leave for its August recess. They had to do a, a NATO vote for Finland and Sweden and other things were going on and sort of people couldn't be in two places at once. And um, they do have every intention of taking up this bill after the recess in September. However, the reason it's been in the news again all of a sudden is because there were reports that the White House is lobbying against it. Not necessarily don't do it, but at least you know, soften it a little bit. And there was sort of an open debate, you know, aired through the press where one senator said, you know, maybe they have a point and others said, absolutely not. Why would we soften this up when China's firing rockets across the Taiwan Strait? One thing that I'm looking out for now is just a sense of when they finally get around to taking up this bill, when they return to Washington after their their summer recess, you know, will there be any changes in it? Will anything be softened? Will anything be made more hardline? Because, you know, this was introduced before uh, Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. And so maybe people are thinking a little bit differently about what Taiwan might need and what the U.S. should be doing to help it. You know, one of the things about these congressional delegation trips overseas is that they always describe them as sort of like listening sessions where they sort of are assessing, you know, what do these countries need and what what do they you know, what do they want from the U.S.? What do they need? What do they expect? And, and so um, they might have new information in addition to what they've seen for themselves about the reaction from China. Um, and, and maybe there will be updates there. So, you know, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Of course, while elevating Taiwan to this relationship as a major non-NATO ally, there's no mention of any support for it at the WHO even at the Olympics. So in the spirit of strategic ambiguity, the US is elevating Taiwan while also not restoring formal diplomatic relations that had broke off in 1979. Has anyone directly spoken to this or clarified this position? Yeah. So the Congress has already been basically pushing the administration to do more to bring Taiwan into international organizations like the World Health Organization. You know, Speaker Pelosi mentioned that today. You know, she said something along the lines of China can keep them out of the WHO, but they can't keep us from going to Taiwan type of thing. So there's a there's a part of the bill, for example, that deals with something that is, you know, symbolic but very important in terms of how the two governments engage with each other, which is the display of the flag. And, you know, that's not necessarily the same thing as Taiwanese athletes wearing the Taiwanese flag at the Olympics. But it is sort of a, another symbol that the, the U.S. is going to allow Taiwanese officials to express themselves as members of the Taiwanese government rather than as this other thing, even if there is no formal diplomatic relationship. And just for context of how far this conversation has shifted in Washington, in 2015, during the Obama administration, there was a day when at the Taiwanese de facto ambassador's residents, this place called Twin Oaks in Washington, they flew the Republic of China flag, you know, the, the Taiwanese flag. And at the time in 2015, this was actually Jen Psaki used to be the State Department spokeswoman. And she was, you know, President Biden's spokeswoman in the White House. Um, she just left a few months ago. She was asked about that at the time in 2015. And she basically said that, you know, the ceremony was not consistent with U.S. policy. And then sort of reiterated in the very technical language what U.S. policy is. And that was that. And now 
this bill is basically saying, fly the flag, you know, wear your symbols. In, in just seven years, you know, both Democratic administrations, this is Democratic Congress right now, it's a bipartisan bill, but, you know, it's shifted so far, this conversation on Taiwan, that, you know, something that was once very controversial is now just sort of like an afterthought in the bill. Like, why were we ever not letting them fly a flag in the city of Washington, D.C.? Well, talking about language and ambiguity, Jacob, this proposed update to the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, being referred to in media coverage as the Taiwan Bill, very specific mention about providing Taipei with arms used in a, quote, defensive character. Now, this act changes that to, quote, arms conducive to deterring acts of aggression by the People's Liberation Army. Now, really talking about strategic ambiguity, deterring acts of aggression within that four and a half billion US dollars being promised. Gosh, that could buy any number of US weapon systems from THAAD missile systems to, I don't know, some uh, F-18 Super Hornets. What do we know about this huge funding bill being proposed for the US to Taiwan? Yeah, this this language change, you know, if it were to become law, um, it, 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 it just, um, you know, opens the doors even wider to the U.S. being able to send arms and weaponry to Taiwan. Um, and it's sort of, um, you know, in the, in the language of, of the bill, as you know, as you said, it, it, it's, it's right there that this is a situation where there is a, you know, a threatening power on their doorstep in the view of U.S. Congress um, that um, needs to be, you know, stopped and deterred and and blocked from from you know basically waging war against Taiwan um and um you know there's a real push in congress to make sure that not only is Taiwan getting enough weaponry from the US but that they're getting there fast enough again especially in the aftermath of China's military drills you know, this past week, um, there's a real sense of urgency. This is not some abstract theoretical thing that people are talking about. This is a really urgent threat. What else is on your radar right now? What developments are you following and looking for? I'll definitely be looking out for this dynamic uh, where you have potential tension between the Biden administration and Congress, even Democratic members of Congress over this Taiwan legislation, sort of how hard are they going to be willing to fight back against not only Congress, but, you know, public opinion on this, um, you know, which is very much on the side of Taiwan. Um, uh, and, and so they're, they're going to be taking in, you know, geopolitics into account, um, and they're going to be taking U.S. domestic politics into account um, when they make, well, any decision that they ever make, um, but including um, related to Taiwan. You know, there's just three months to go before the midterm elections. Things are going to get crazier here. The entire House of Representatives and one third of the Senate is on the ballot. You know, this is going to be a big potential shift in, you know, what the administration can can get done for the next few years if the parties flip in Congress. But, you know, with 
anything related to China, this this really has become one of, if not the only major consequential issues that both parties really agree on. Not always necessarily the exact solution to the problems, but they definitely agree on the problem um, for the most part. And so I think the China agenda in in Congress will continue full steam ahead, no matter who controls these things. But um, in the meantime, you know, if they're trying to rush this bill, you know, through now before the end of this Congress, I'll, I'll, I'll be interested to see, is the administration going to try and stop it? Um, and if so, why? Well, Jacob, it looks like there's a lot more to come from you. Seems like we've shifted from dramatic montages of missiles and aircraft to dramatic paperwork. If not search warrants being executed in the country club in Florida, it's going to be possibly a piece of legislation that significantly changes the original 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. Jacob Fromer, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for having me. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Xi Jiangtao is our Beijing Diplomacy and Policy Specialist at the South China Morning Post and joins me again this week. And as always, we're very grateful for your time. Hi, Jared. Jiangtao, can I begin with something you've emphasized for us in our most recent podcast episodes, and that's the importance of back-channel diplomacy and the mid-level and high-level communications between China's military forces, the PLA, and the military forces of the U.S., what does it signal to you that this week Beijing's cancelled all military dialogues with the US as part of its response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Uh, yes, Jared, I think it's a great pity and uh, it's a major cause of concern. Uh, we understand it's a tough job to stop the seemingly intractable tensions and heal their almost unbridgeable divide. But that's what diplomacy is for. Actually, I recall Xi Jinping once said in during his first meeting with Donald Trump in 2017, he said, there are a thousand reasons to make the US-China relations a success and not a single reason to break it. The current situation that could have dire global consequences calls for tactful diplomacy. Just like 50 years ago, when Nixon and Kissinger went to Beijing, and reached a historical detente with Mao Zedong and Zhou Lai, in spite of their political and ideological differences. But of course, there are counter arguments questioning whether the expansion of exchanges and the deepening of mutual understanding could help avoid the deterioration of bilateral ties. Because obviously the lack of mutual understanding did not prevent leaders in Beijing and Washington from seeking detente in 1972. But after decades of political and diplomatic engagement, deeper mutual understanding and the high levels of economic interdependence, here we are with China and the US on a collision course. So that's an interesting argument raised by uh, Peking University Professor Wang Zisi last year. Professor Wang suggested that both sides need deeper thinking and more effective action to help mitigate confrontation and conflict. In other words, they need to find ways to bridge the gaps of uh, trust deficit 
such as restoring all levels of official and unofficial communications, and trying to put themselves in their opponent's shoes. Can I ask you, do you think this is a permanent freeze or do you think this is part of the overall campaign of demonstrating to the US how angry Beijing is with Nancy Pelosi's visit? I think the latter is uh, more accurate. I don't expect the suspension of those important channels of communication last because it hurts China as well. And it hinders China's own effort to portray itself as a mature, confident and responsible power, especially on issues of uh, global importance such as maritime security and climate change. Actually, the White House has, has complained that Beijing regularly goes after those lines of engagements to show their displeasure with Washington. And they have suspended these dialogues for a variety of reasons in the past. A U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, a former Secretary of State, has described Beijing's decision as disappointing and misguided. He said, the climate crisis is not a bilateral issue. It is universal. Suspending cooperation doesn't punish the United States. It punishes the world, particularly the developing world. You know, Kerry is probably the last one in the Biden White House who firmly believes in engagement and diplomatic dialogue with Beijing, despite domestic opposition in Washington and Beijing's lack of willingness. Kerry warned last year during a trip to China that climate talks should not be used as a geostrategic weapon. When China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi said, climate change and other bilateral issues cannot be an oasis in bilateral ties and cannot possibly be divorced from other geopolitical tensions. But it remains to be seen if the bilateral cooperation mechanism can be resumed before the United Nations Climate Conference in Egypt in early November. So, Gentile, let me turn to events of well, this week. We've reported on the PLA at first extending its exercises in and around the Taiwan Strait and then calling them off. And then Beijing has launched what is known as a white paper, a document laying out the overarching philosophy for how it foresees the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China. What's the significance of this white paper? Is it intended for an overseas audience or for a domestic audience? Jared, it's an interesting question. I think the title of the new white paper on Taiwan says it all. It's called The Taiwan Question and China's Reunification in the New Era. As we know, the new era is a fixed term in mainland politics to specifically refer to the Xi Jinping era. So this new document basically sums up Xi Jinping's approach towards Taiwan. So basically, I think the white paper is mostly for domestic audience as well as for overseas audience. It is largely in line with Xi Jinping's most important speech so far on Taiwan in January 2019, when he described the Taiwan question as a historical trauma for the Chinese nation and said the self-governing island must be reunited with Beijing under one country, two systems, a model applied in Hong Kong and Macau. She was believed to have equaled the 1992 consensus with one country, two systems. And his proposal for unification talks was met with robust criticism from Taiwan. The 1992 consensus is a tacit agreement between Beijing and Taiwan's then Kuomintang administration that there is one China, but each side can have their own interpretations. To some extent, many experts say it was a turning point in cross-strait relations in retrospect. After Beijing quelled the mass protests in Hong Kong in 2019, 
Tsai Ing-wen won her second term in a landslide victory in 2020, riding on the sentiment that is overwhelming against the one country, two system formula. A latest poll by Taiwan's National Chengchi University's Election Study Center last month showed that most people in Taiwan favored the status quo, with those favoring unification near an all-time low in two decades. Actually, Chinese government-linked experts in Beijing have also made it clear that compared to the two previous white papers in 1993 and 2000, the room for Taiwan, according to Xi's proposal, has been significantly narrowed. While Taiwan is allowed to have consular exchanges with foreign governments, Beijing has removed the pledges that Taiwan can have its own military and mainland China will not deploy military personnel to Taiwan after reunification. Other conciliatory wordings such as uh, the, the offer of a high degree of autonomy for Taiwan and a more relaxed one country, two system governance model compared with Hong Kong and Macau also missing from the new document. Actually, the timing of the white paper is particularly intriguing. Hours after this publication on Tuesday, Beijing announced the completion of its largest military drills uh, in the Taiwan Strait, which began from Thursday. It also coincided with a surprising mainland visit by the opposition, Taiwan's opposition party, KMT's vice chairman, which has prompted outcry in Taiwan it also coincided with a surprising mainland visit by the Taiwan's opposition party, KMT's vice chairman, which has prompted an outcry in Taiwan over the KMT's kowtowing to Beijing. But the white paper also came as uh, the international community is becoming even more divided over how to deal with China's military posturing over Taiwan. Last week, Wang Yi staged two walkouts at ASEAN and East Asia summit in Cambodia and canceled a bilateral meeting with Japan's foreign minister in protest against Washington, Tokyo, and the G7's condemnation of China's alleged gross overreaction to Pelosi's Taiwan visit. Uh, while China's Southeast Asian neighbors have voiced the support of Beijing's One China policy, and South Korea's foreign minister made a debut visit to China this week amid heightened tensions between China and the US, things actually don't look pretty for China. Even Germany and France are beginning to talk about helping defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion. You mentioned Germany and France. Has there been response from nearer neighbours like Japan? Yes, Jared. Actually, there are very strong response from Japan. Uh, there's been a shift, actually, in Japan, advocated by Japan's late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in recent years, that tends to see Japan and Taiwan are linked on national security. Since last year, Japan has started working on a joint operation plan with the U.S. military, preparing for contingency over Taiwan. And even more alarmingly for Beijing, Japan has for the first time conducted a joint military drill with, with the U.S. to deal with the possible situation that poses threats to Japan's national existence, according to its defense minister this week. The six-day drill was held as part of the U.S.-led Rim of the Pacific naval exercises attended by 27 nations and completed on August the 3rd, just the day before China started its military exercises on August 4th, including launching ballistic missiles into Japan's special economic zone. Well, this is the reaction to China's document issued this week, but we had one coming the other way, and I'm speaking about the U.S. Congress moving a step closer to its Taiwan Policy Act 
uh, touted as, quote, the most comprehensive restructuring of US policy towards Taiwan since Beijing and Washington established official ties in 1979. Yu filed a detailed report on the reaction within China to this proposed act. What did you find out? Actually, uh, Chinese experts are describing as uh, a bigger crisis is coming. Although actually the bill has been delayed for now by the Biden administration in the wake of uh, Pelosi's Taiwan visit. But Chinese experts are are saying that uh, the new U.S. bill would threaten to overturn the U.S.-China relations. Actually, the most provocative part of the bill is uh, it designates Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Uh, which, according to Chinese experts, would be equivalent to recognition of Taiwan's sovereignty. And according to Lu Xiang from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, he says it means the U.S. would abandon its China policy completely. And other Chinese experts also warned that uh, if Washington follows the current path on Taiwan, it would effectively lead to some sort of restoration of the U.S.-Taiwan military alliance. But actually, according to U.S. experts, The bill specifically said uh, it is not to be construed as a restoration of diplomatic ties with Taiwan. It also noted that uh, it does not change the U.S. government's position on Taiwan's international status. Really appreciate your time. And of course, we'll be watching scnp.com for your upcoming analysis pieces. Thank you very much for your time. Finbar Birmingham is the South China Morning Post correspondent in Europe. Finbar, welcome back. Let's get straight to it. In the days leading up to and in the immediate aftermath of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, what reactions did you see coming from European politicians? I would say broadly the official reaction has been rather muted. Uh, before uh, Pelosi landed in Taiwan, when it was suspected that she was going to, to visit um, Taipei, Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, um, compared the situation in Taiwan with Ukraine and drew parallels with a bigger neighbor bullying a smaller neighbor. Um, after and the, the German ambassador was, uh, as a result, summoned in, in Beijing. Uh, after that, when the visit happened, we had a couple of days of not a great deal. The G7 came out with a statement uh, to which the French, German, Italian and European Union Uh, Foreign ministers were signatories which defended the right of politicians to visit um, Taiwan and which also accused China of unsettling the region, of destabilizing the region. And then it was it was Friday by the time we had an official European Union response, uh, and that was Joseph Borrell speaking at an ASEAN forum in Cambodia, um, and he gave a speech very much keeping to the bare bones of the G7 statement, uh, underlining the fact that they felt that China was destabilizing the region, that firing rockets over the main island of Taiwan was reckless, and that the European Union has vested interest in stability in that region. Now, Brussels here, where I'm sitting, is a bit of a ghost town at the moment. Everybody goes on holiday here in August, except Muggins here. Um, and the only reason, the sense I get, the, the main reason why there was a speech by Borrell in Cambodia was because he was in Cambodia and because he had his Asia staff with him. He had all of his China staff with him, I, I understand. Um, the EU generally has been very reluctant to get drawn into this. They don't see this as a European issue. 
um, directly. Of course, there may be ramifications if the situation spirals or if there were some sort of longer term, you know, supply chain disruptions and, and geopolitical disruptions. But for now, they're quite content to hitch their wagon to the G7 to stand on the sidelines and, and you know, say their piece, underline their messaging. This is our one China policy. We're not ditching it, but we we, we condemn China's actions without getting drawn into the minutiae of this. They don't really want to get bogged down on this. European attention is still laser-focused on Ukraine. That is the most prominent, by far, foreign policy issue for most European capitals, and there's simply not really the capacity to get heavily invested in the Taiwan issue right now. That's obviously something that the United States has been nibbling away at for months now, as far back as, as February or March, I was speaking to some people who'd been uh, involved in delegations of European politicians to Washington, at which the US uh, officials, very, very senior US officials for Asia, had been trying to convince their German counterparts that they should not view uh, the situations in Ukraine and Taiwan as different. They were the, the wording was, you shouldn't divide this into a Pacific theatre and, and a European theatre. This is single theatre stuff. In the future, this will be authoritarians versus Democrats. The Europeans are not buying that. They don't really see any direct implications for, for Europe in what's going on right now in Taiwan. Uh, they have their own interests in microchips and stuff like that. that. That seems to be the basis for their efforts to expand ties with Taiwan. But just to summarize a very rambling answer there, the EU doesn't see this as its fight. It is sort of making its statement and not wanting to get too involved. We've seen and heard a number of politicians from the conservative side of politics in the US, the UK and Australia all announce their intention to visit Taiwan in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's visit. Has there been a similar effect in Europe? I would say yes and no. I would say that there has already been a steady stream of visits from European lawmakers to Taiwan, and that's going to continue. I don't necessarily think that they're inspired by the Pelosi visit. I think that the the Taiwanese uh, diplomatic corps in Europe has been working very hard to normalize visits of European lawmakers to the island for a number of years now. I think what's the most interesting thing is that these visits will continue and the lawmakers that I've spoken to have said that they will not be cowed by the Chinese reaction to the Pelosi visit. So there has been announced this morning a German uh, group of lawmakers will visit Taiwan early October. I was just speaking to Marie-Pierre Vidren, who is a very senior lawmaker in the European Parliament, French uh, MEP, part of the uh, European Parliament's Trade Committee. She plans to travel in December as part of that committee's efforts to grow trade ties with Taiwan. I asked her, are you still planning this? She said, of course. Our, our plans have not changed. This situation does not involve us, but it also does not interrupt our own plans. You know, So, so she's not intimidated by what's happened here. Um, look, uh, th th there's a difference though between what lawmakers do and what the official policy is. And this is a bone of contention that I've reported on over the past couple of weeks. Um, the outgoing European Union's ambassador to China, Nicola Chapuy, was told at his leaving party in July that the Chinese government don't differentiate between lawmakers and between official policy. So, for example, if somebody says something to the European Parliament, the ambassador in Beijing always gets summoned, even though it's not really anything that he's condoned or endorsed. But as he was told, China doesn't see two EUs. 
there's only one EU. So if the European Parliament does something, then we will read this as official policy. So if these lawmakers are going to Taiwan and China is uh, reading this as, as official policy of the European Union or of the member state from where the the, the uh, lawmaker comes, that could be problematic. We've seen sort of the, the, the lines with, with the Pelosi-Biden administration a little bit blurred, but very messy on the, on the side of Washington and also no effort to differentiate on the side of the, the Chinese. So I think think as much as the European Union wants to keep its nose out of this argument, if you continue to see this steady stream of lawmakers traveling to Taipei and making statements, then it's only, I mean, it's it's natural that if, if China does differentiate, then it will, it will be dragged into this in some way or other. Now, let's just see how far it goes. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is second in line to the US presidency. These lawmakers are nowhere near the seat of power. I mean, there's a difference between the European Parliament is an important part of the European Union. It is a lawmaking institution, one of three or four that there are here in Brussels. Uh, it makes recommendations and policy. It helps to negotiate how policy should work. But it doesn't set the the rules and the regulations alone. You know, it's it's an important institution, but it is a separate chamber of power. So, look, we'll see how this goes. I mean, over the last year or two that I've been covering this stuff, Taiwan has overtaken Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and other issues involving China uh, as the big sort of China topic du jour. Uh, I don't think that's going to change. I think, if anything, that this uh, this visit of Pelosi will, will make that even more so the case. Well, speaking of the individual comments versus the chamber of power, as you say, Finbar, I see China's ambassador to Australia is making headlines today for saying something very close to what China's ambassador to France said just recently about indoctrination and re-education of people in Taiwan. Can you take us through that? Yes, I haven't seen, in, I haven't looked in great detail at the Australian envoy, uh, the Chinese envoy to Australia rather, his remarks, I understand he was speaking at a press club meeting and he sort of said that post-reunification, the assumption being that reunification will indeed happen, there will need to be some effort to uh, you know, realign people's views. I, I'm not quoting directly there, but it's something that we've seen in Europe here over the last couple of days. Lu Xiaoyu, who is the uh, Chinese ambassador to Paris, he is seen here in Europe as the archetypal wolf warrior diplomat, very bellicose, very prolific on Twitter, uh, always getting himself in scrapes. He's been summoned to the Elysee many times or the foreign ministry in, in, in Paris many times. Um, very controversial character. And he's appeared on French television two or three times over the last few days in which uh, he's he's sort of hammered down on this point that post-reunification, the Taiwanese people will need to be re-educated. He has caused a few waves in Paris uh, by saying these things. Uh, he's compared this to, when he's been asked about it, he's compared it to the sort of French civics education uh, in which people are educated into the ways of the Republic. And this is something that has vexed uh, French uh, officials, French lawmakers, no end. They see this as the, the Republican education is teaching them how a democratic system works. You know, so for instance, Macron may be the prime, the president who is inspiring the, the current raft of education, but he's teaching these kids and, and and everybody else how people can be defeated in elections. Um, you know, so they see this as 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 one lawmaker told me this morning. They see this as defamatory. Um, you know, so so Lou has uh, been been 
sort of wheeling out these messages for the last few days, he said that um, there will need to be a re-sinicization of the Taiwanese education system, um, that over the past 20 years, um, the government of Taiwan, inspired by America, of course, uh, is behind all of this, according to Liu, has been indoctrinating its people. And that is the reason why uh, the public opinion on reunification is so low. So China will, of course, have to remedy that if and when it decides to take Taipei. That is what Liu says. It's caught the eye a little bit here. I, mean, I must say the, the overall reaction to the Taiwan situation is, as I said at the start of the conversation, not very big. These comments have ga- gathered some 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 attention, but overall people are distracted and people are on, on holiday here in Europe. And if we're speaking individual nations in Europe, Fimba, I can't help but recall your reporting to this podcast last late last year when you found yourself at the reception for the opening of the Taiwan representative office in the capital of Lithuania and the ensuing trade sanctions from mainland China on Lithuania products. What was the reaction to the PLA's live fire drills around Taiwan from Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania? And have any other European nations made individual comment? Lithuania has been really the only one that's done that. As I said, the German foreign minister spoke about it before the fact, and some of the major member states signed on the G7 statement. But Lithuania's foreign minister, Gabrielis Landsbergis, uh, has been the only one who's put his head above the parapet. He said that Nancy Pelosi has opened the door to uh, Taiwan, that he hopes more defenders of freedom will walk through. This has started some speculation that maybe will will Landsbergis visit, uh, you know, the the Lithuanians plan to open a diplomatic and trade presence in Taipei next month. Um, You know, so that would be, I suppose, an opportunity if he was planning. If he visited, that would be seen as a serious escalation. I mean, this is a foreign minister. Um, you know, he's he's the son of the former Lithuanian leader. It would be viewed very seriously in Beijing, but also in Brussels. Uh, I've spoken to some senior diplomats who have said that they really have been kept in the dark about Lithuania's plans for the presence in Taipei. I mean, you saw the storm that the the other one caused in, in Lithuania, the Taiwanese office, because it was called Taiwanese and not Taipei as is sort of the standard in Europe and the West. So they're worried what what happens, for example, if the Lithuanian office has some sort of a funky name that doesn't go along with the uh, with the sort of status quo. My understanding is it's not going to, although I'm hoping to find out a wee bit more about that later when I interview the ambassador to China from Lithuania in exile. She was, of course, kicked out of the country last year when they expelled her and her staff over this row uh, on Taiwan. So I get it from the horse's mouth later this afternoon and I'll report back next week. Look for that story as well as your ongoing reporting on SEMP.com. Finn Barbarian, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jared. Now, before we go any further, an update to this interview with Finbar. A short while after we recorded this, he was onto the story that Estonia and Latvia have suddenly pulled out of Beijing's 16 plus 1 trade group of European nations. We'll catch up with him next week for a full report on the reaction to that news. But for now, that's all for this week. Stay in touch with our 24-hour news coverage at scmp.com. Stay up to date with the political economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. I'm at J underscore Watt. Thanks for listening and wherever you are, keep that mask on. Stay safe. Bye for now.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.